what I um, uh, we got a note, and the note was about bowing. And so I thought, actually, uh, what the note was asking about bowing was very relevant to what I want to talk about this evening. So that's why I'll start with bowing. So some of us are just going about their day, not doing anything strange, regular style. And then the person noticed that some of us, we enter the hall and we do this. Or we might end the meditation and we do this. And then, of course, there is a bowing, the three full bows. So I think what we have to see First, I'd like to start with an uh, anecdote, a story. Long, long, long ago, very long ago, in 1980, <laughs> 1982, I was in California with Master Cousin, and he was staying in a very small temple near Carmel, and people kind of have been invited to come and visit him if they wanted. And then this young couple came and they wanted to see the master. And then as they were just kind of entering and just going to sit there on the floor, Master Cousin said to me in Korean, no, stop them and ask them to bow three times. And I thought, oh, how is this going to go? Kind of, you know, these people are not used to that. He said, please do that. So I said, well, the master said, please, could you bow three times? And they said, okay. So they did the bow. And then whatever happened, the exchange happened. And then I, I had mixed feeling about this because I was wondering, but you know, this is America, this is a different culture. Do we need to have to tell people to do the bow? It might feel very strange, a little kind of, you know, what should I do this? Could it be seen a little bit as possibly a little arrogant? You know, the Zen master has to be bowed to a thing like that. So I had really mixed feeling about this. And then I went to the master and I said, why, you know, it's a little awkward. They're not used to this. Uh, why do you want me to do this? Could we not have it? And he said, I want them to do the three bows so they take their time and they consider this as different, as we're going to meet, we're going to exchange, we're going to talk about the Dharma. It's not like they're going to go into the supermarket and buy apple juice. This is, in a way, a sacred space. And so I want them, not actually for me, me, I don't care <laughs> if they bow to me or not, but I want it for themselves so that in the bowing, in a way, they connect to why did they really come here? You know, what is it that they value? What is it, why do they want to meet me? 
And so in a way, it's to create a space between one could say like a busy life to, oh, now we're going to look. Because for my teacher, the Dharma was actually a matter of life and death. And if it was a matter of life and death, then he wanted that this was in a way a serious encounter. And so that the people would, in the bowing itself, they were okay. We have to take our time here. We just, so there was, in a way, cultivating a culture of respect, of posing, or connecting to deep value. And so, in a way, when I was living in the monastery in Korea, I learned to bow. I learned to do this. And when I stopped being a nun and came back to England, I would go into shop and I would <laughs> until I realized it was not appropriate. <laughs> because in a way it's kind of part of the Asian culture. You go to Thailand, you go to Burma, you go to India, you do this. So in a way, in part, bowing this way is actually a cultural greeting. But why does it take its shape? In the same way that in Korea, if I give somebody something to somebody, either I do this or I would do this. I would not give something like this. I mean, they might have changed now. But in the day I was there, you had to do this. And in a way, why would you need to do this to present something? Or why would you need to do this to greet somebody? To show that you're actually safe. If you show your two hands, you basically are not hiding a knife behind your back. So in a way, I personally feel this, what they call way why in Thailand, what they call hapjang in Korea, is actually a very ancient cultural way to meet each other and saying to each other, we are not dangerous. I am not here to attack you because I show you two, my two hands and they're close to each other, so they can't do very much. I mean, you could always <coughs> try that, but... And in Korea, so you would do this just to greet, because at the time, now they might be a little different, at the time, you really, I mean, you don't kiss and you don't hug. Once I hugged somebody, that was like a major kind of, now I think it would be different, but in the 80s, if you hug somebody in Korea, it was really unheard of. You did not do this. You always, this is a cultural Confucianist society. You always have kind of the distance. And so this is like a friendly way to meet. I am seeing you. I am respecting you. I am meeting you in peace. And also, notice what do we do here? We bring our heart in the middle of our heart. So it's actually a gesture of nearly bringing peace, bringing my heart. Or you could say, 
meeting heart to heart. So that's what this means. And so when I was in Korea, if I went into my bedroom, I would not do this to the space. But if I went in the meditation hall or if I went in the Dharma hall, then I would do this again as soon as I entered. Again, as I was saying, I am aware I am in a place where I'm going to cultivate the Dharma, where I'm going to pay my respect. So very much seeing this as a greeting, but also seeing as meeting somebody with respect and in peace. Then there is the bowing we do. And so Korean style, you kind of you bow down. That's what we do in the morning. That's what we do in the afternoon. And so there's one thing more cultural one has to know in terms of bowing down, which doesn't seem obvious to us. It's like in Korea in the old days, that's what I used to do, is that you had two basins and you put some water in the basin to wash yourself. But you had a basin for the high, which means high, and then you have a basin for the low. And then you really did not wash your face in the low basin. And you did not wash your feet in the high basin. They were to be separate. I know we are supposed to be non-dual, but <laughs> this is cultural. So in a way, what happens here when we bow down to the ground with our head? Actually, the top goes down. And so in a way, when we bow down with our head, we're actually paying our respect. And so in a way, we are paying respect. I mean, you can do it. You can have different understanding. You can pay your respect to the Buddha, who practiced and started the teaching. You can pay respect to the Dharma, the teaching itself. You can practice. You pay the respect to the community of practitioner. But personally, I feel when I am bowing, and that's what I was taught, that actually when I'm bowing, I'm bowing to what the statue represents, not the statue itself, not a god somewhere floating, but you actually, what does the statue represent? And the statue represents awakening. The statue represents compassion. So actually, when we bow, we're actually bowing to our own Buddha nature, to our own potential to become a Buddha, to our own capacity to be compassionate. So that when we're bowing, we're actually bowing to ourselves. And in the meditation hall in Korea, if you don't have any statue, then sometimes you have a mirror and everybody bows toward the mirror in which they are reflected. Or they bow to each other because they're bowing again to their Buddha nature. They're bowing to that capacity they have to awaken. And then there is a thing about you sit here 
And at the end, I do this. This is not Korean. This is, I picked it up with my Japanese Soto friend. Because when they finish their sitting, they do this. I mean, they do more things, but, and I kind of liked it. I thought, that's nice. Because in a way, here, what I'm doing is I'm saying, I'm grateful for my practice. I am grateful I am alive right now to do this practice. So, in a way, that's it. So it's just kind of this small gesture for me of gratitude. But I'm also aware this is kind of quite cultural, in a way. So that's why I don't say to people to do it, but just you do it if you feel like it, or if you learn to do it, or many different ways. But at the same time, one doesn't need to do it. I think this is very important. And then the last thing is about the offering. The offering on the altar actually is because they are symbols of awakening. And so the incense, as it disappears, it's spread, it's perfume equally. It doesn't say, oh, I don't like them over there. I'm just going to go there. It goes everywhere. So this is an aspect of awakening that it helps us to be everywhere and to treat everybody equally. Then you have the candle. And the candle is interesting because it's lit. So you light, when you don't lit the candle, it's opaque. As soon as you lit it, it is illuminated and illuminating. So in a way, awakening illuminates yourself at the same time as you are illuminated for others, illuminating for others. And then the water is because the water is totally adaptable. You put it in a round bowl, in a, in a square bowl, whatever. It adapts to any receptor it's in. And also because water does not go up generally. I'm sure somewhere water goes up, but in general, water goes down. And so seeing awakening as not being above, but actually just meeting the world, flowing in the world. And then I wanted to talk about something which is uh, characteristic of my monastery. And it was a little looked down upon, but I was happy to be there. So in the Song tradition, Chan, Zen, they have this idea, they have this little debate, is awakening sudden? And practice also sudden. So they have this idea, you have sudden awakening and sudden practice, and that's the best. And then you have a kind of lower grade, where I was in my monastery, and we were, the sudden awakening 
with gradual practice. And this is an idea which was very much developed by, uh, I mean, it comes also from China, but very much developed by the founder of the monastery in the 12th century. And so here, what's the idea here? With sudden and gradual, what's the idea is that you have a sudden breakthrough, but then it, it needs to be followed by gradual cultivation. And here what they're saying is that at any given moment, we can have a breakthrough. We can have an insight, etc., etc. But then, when we are in our daily life, what are we meeting? When we are our cushion, what are we meeting? Actually, a lot of the time, we are meeting our patterns. We are meeting our habits. And then we think, if only I had not done this. If only I had not said this. A few years back, uh, I had to take care of my mother, and I was very busy at home. But I really needed to go to town to get a few things, and I needed to go to the Apple store and get a cable. And so finally, I managed to go to town. But I have all these things to do. So I arrive in town, I park, I go to the Apple store. But you know what it is when you go into it. You can never get anything, and it takes a long time. So I kind of whiz through the store, realize this is not going to be fast enough for me. And I go out to go to another store, hoping it will be faster. And then I come out of the store, and then suddenly I kind of look at myself, and I think to myself, if I told these people in the store that I was a meditation teacher, they would not believe me. And then I thought, yeah, indeed, you were caught. You were caught in the busyness. And then I went back to the body, I went back to the breath. Okay. And then let's say I was much more teacher-like. <laughs> and so in a way, that's what the sudden and gradual is about. Like my teacher was reputed to have had three awakening. And you might think, you know, one should be enough. But no, there is this idea you have a breakthrough, you see something, you experience something, but then the habit patterns are so strong that then it takes time to dissolve them. But also that we need to make this organic into our daily life. So to me, that's what is so interesting about the practice, also on a retreat, because on a retreat we can refine and we have more time. And so sometimes, yeah, we can. I remember many years ago, I kind of was kind of like, you know, I would sit in meditation and then I would have this each here, so itchy. 
And then I would just sit there. What is this? <laughs> but then I would just go into it. Go into it. And then I would go inside the sensation. And when I would go inside the sensation, I had the feeling it was so intense, it would going to last for a long time. But I would just sit there, and then it was suddenly so gone. And to me, this is what is so interesting, in a way, to have the time to be on a retreat, to see why do I have a tendency to think this is going to last a long time because of the intensity. Anytime something is intense, the intensity itself, suddenly this is going to last a long time. And then it becomes really interesting when you thought it was so there. And now it is so gone. And to see then how that shift, oh, even something intense can go. And so from that experience, I have this mantra. How long is this going to last? And then wait to see how long does it take before it goes. And if it goes relatively fast, then I don't have to do anything with it. But if it happens again and again, but it doesn't happen all the time, then what's going on? And then I become very interested in what I call the trigger, the habit, the contributing factor. And to see, ah, this is how this comes together. And then in a way, creatively engaging with it, playing with it. And then sometimes something is so intense that we actually have to let it go through us. And then the thing is more, how can I not amplify it? How can I let it be there? And in order not to be so tense around it, can I just for a few seconds bring a little calm? Just a few seconds be with the breath. Recently something happened. Somebody sent a document. I read the document and I was like, oh was a little despondent. So I read the document thoroughly, as usually I do, and I was, oh. And then I noticed the next morning, I was like feeling really low, which I generally don't. Then I thought, ah, the document. <laughs> next day. Still a little low, the document. Because actually reading the document meant I actually had to do something. 
And then my first, if you're in this low mood, you think, whoa, it's going to be tough, it's going to be difficult, and this and that and another. And then after two days, I woke up, I thought, okay, how can we creatively engage with this? What can we do different? And the result was excellent, if I may say so. <laughs> but to me, it's that. We're not stopping the experience, but we're creatively engaging with the experience. And it's the same, I know. It's not always easy to be on retreat, and sometimes kind of we experience pain, or we, in daily life we experience pain. And to me, when I really, long ago, I knew pain, I realized not only it's painful, but it's isolating. So from that experience, it's painful, but it's isolating. And actually, when people are in pain, knowing that, how can I be there for them so they're not so isolated within it? So out of that, inside, having the compassion, having this creative, compassionate response. And then, you can also have, in a way, and I know it has been talked about a little already, the famous anatta, not self, <laughs> you know. And often, long ago, I had this image, you know, not self, emptiness, you know, that at the end of the retreat, just puffs of smoke on the cushion. <laughs> Poof. Everybody disappearing. But generally not. But what does it mean not self? I think, in a way, as an experience, to be one of the most relevant things about not self is the fact that it is saying that actually we are this flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. That's all it's saying. But then what it is saying is, I cannot reduce myself to any one of the elements that forms me. And to me, often, that's what happens. We have a thought, we have a situation, we have a sensation, we have an illness, whatever it is, suddenly, that's all there is. I mean, how painful is it to reduce ourselves to just one component? And to me, the practice is to discover how complex the self is, made up of all these conditions. And so in a way, the practice is a discovery of what constitutes this self, what I would call this functioning self, how it's impacted and meet the world. And then the other thing about 
this not self is how it was developed over time. And over time, it was developed in terms of interdependence. And to me, what I when I reflect on conditionality, when I reflect experientially on not-self, I kind of like look at this organism. And then this organism is alive. But I am not doing it at one level. This organism, I mean, I'm getting a little old, 70 years old. So this organism has lived for 70, year, 70 years. And at one level, it's changing. I mean, when I was a baby to now, a little different. But, so there is some continuity. But possibly, I won't be a pink elephant tomorrow. I can die, that's possible. Big elephant, unlikely. So there is some continuity, but within that, there is some change. And then if you ask yourself, how is this organism surviving? Generally, everything outside of ourselves. The food I eat, the water I drink, the clothes I wear, the house I live in, the heating I put on, but a little lower nowadays. In France, 19 degrees, etc., etc. So in a way, and the food I eat, that's why I think the teaching of Ching Natan is so beautiful. Because he has so many beautiful ways to show us actually emptiness as conditionality, emptiness as interdependence. That actually, my life depends uh, most of the time on everything outside of me. And that's why we had this beautiful chant in Korea when we ate. And the chant was saying, you must not waste a grain of rice. Because think about where it comes from, that rice. It was planted and all the labor and the way it got to you and everything, all this energy, all this labor, even maybe some suffering, so that for you to continue to survive. So for me, experiencing not self is actually experiencing our connection, experiencing our interdependence. So now we're seeing that you have this sudden insight, and in a way, how can I practice with that insight? Or sometimes, when we sit in meditation, suddenly once I had that experience, and I thought it was very funny, because I was sitting there, here in Gaya House, on a retreat, and suddenly, my heart, was so open. And what did it mean that it was so open? 
I could not find anybody I would not love. And I realized at that moment that yes, generally I love, but maybe not those one. Maybe not that one, not so much. But it was so it was so interesting. And all the people, some I, I would not have included normally, they were all there. They could be included in that love. And you have that experience, you feel, ah, this is wonderful. But like all things, it's impermanent. You know, and then you go back home and you're kind of like, hmm? why did they do this? And that's what the, the gradual is, is about. It's not that we're going to feel that love all the time to the same degree. But actually, it brings some questioning within it. So you have an experience where you don't have that exclusion. To me, this is a very important part of the Dharma. Who do we exclude? Who do we include? And personally, I think the Dharma is about how can we include as much as we can. So really working on how we exclude and kind of widening, 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 of course, in a wise way. So really that's what the sudden and gradual is about. How can we make it organic? And then I wanted to say a few words about Buddha, the concept of the Buddha. To me, this is, again, something very interesting. The fact that at the beginning, in terms of the tradition, in terms of the way the tradition sees himself, sees itself. At the beginning, the idea that the Buddha becomes the full, enlightened Buddha after many, many, many lifetimes, and only if he's reborn in the body of a male person. So ladies, forget it. Next time. <laughs> and personally, I always had a little problem with that. <laughs> I don't find it very inclusive. But then it was a very patriarchal society. Then they develop over time this idea that you can be awakened, a Buddha, in one lifetime. That's generally better. You don't have all the lifetime, and then you don't have like you know separation of gender. So a little more inclusive. And then arose this idea that you are a Buddha already. So the only thing you have to do tomorrow is be a Buddha. That's all you have to do. That's a recommendation. <laughs> and once I met uh, a nun, and that was her practice. Because she was a um, specialist of the Avatamsaka Sutta, which is one of the important texts in the tradition. And in the Avatamsaka Sutta, it is said, oh, any sentient being is a Buddha, any Buddha, is a sentient being. 
So then from that, just that passage, she decided she was going to be a Buddha. That's her practice, to be a Buddha. So in the morning, she gets up, she does a little chanting, a little meditation, and then she goes because she's a teacher in the, univers in the university. And then she tries to be as Buddha-like as she can, which means the compassion, the wisdom, etc. But then at the end of the day, she checks how Buddha-like was I, how sentient being-like, ordinary sentient being-like was I. And then she starts again the next day. And I thought it was such a beautiful practice, what she did. And that's why I wanted to read to you uh, three. First, a quote. What is a Buddha? So this is an ancient teacher. What is a Buddha? Because somebody comes, you know, and they're discussing together. And so then he said, what is a Buddha? You ask me what is a Buddha. I could tell you, but you will not believe me. And so the person says, oh, I've come very far. Please, you know, tell me, why would not I believe you? And then the master says, all right, if you are sure. The Buddha is nothing special. You are the Buddha. Your mind is a Buddha. Then this is, uh, I wrote a book around her life, a nun I met in Korea, I was very fond of. And she was very humble, but greatly accomplished. And so she wrote just a few poems. And I wanted to share two with you. Buddha cannot see Buddha, sees Buddha. I cannot see I, sees I. I saw the nature awaken to the way. What rubbish. Clear water flows over white rocks. The autumn moon shines bright. So clear is her original face. Who dare say it is or it is not? And then I just wanted to, to share just the last passage from one of my favorite uh, masters from the ancient time called Tawe. And he's really the teacher who kind of in a way made the wadu, the question, the way it is now. Kind of he really made it as an easy way to practice for lay people, actually. Because he was a teacher in the 10th, 11th century in China, worked a lot 
uh, with lay people. And so they wrote him letters about their practice, and then he would reply back. So here, he got a letter from someone. And that's what he replies to the person. Your letter informs me that your rude nature is dim and dull. So obviously, he wrote, you know, like, you know, I practice and nothing happens and I'm really kind of, I can't see anything and I'm vague and it's not, well, okay. So basically he said, you know, dim and dull. Then the master writes back, the one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. So, that's what I wanted to share today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. No, so, so here, uh, what we do is the least we can do. Uh, because in the, in the Dharma Hall, in Korea, that's generally what they would do, just a three bow. And of course, from the traditional point of view, you are bowing to the Buddha, you are bowing to the Dharma, you are bowing to the Sangha. Yes, is it what you're asking? Yes, no, definitely. From a, from a purely cultural, traditional way, that's what we're doing. And at the same time, when they talk about the Buddha, we can in a way bow to the Buddha as a teacher who created the tradition, or we can bow to the Buddha within ourselves. The same, we can bow to the Dharma that has been transmitted to us, we can, or we can bow to the practice that we are practicing ourselves. And then we can bow to the Sangha as in with the lineage which has come down to us, or we can bow to the Sangha here, practicing together. But yes, of course, the three. Um, yeah, yeah, of course, inner and outer, of course, yeah. Yes. Personally, I've always wondered about that. <laughs> because that's what, I mean, for them, this is, this is a thing. It's kind of what is called in the academy uh, the subitist approach. And then the other are the gradual approach. And so I don't know how they explain it, but they say, yeah, you can have certain awakening and you have certain practice, but then you have to talk to them how they explain that. <laughs> because if you read the ancient text, even in that subitist southern tradition, uh, like in the story with Wineng and Weijang, generally it takes a few years before the guy comes back and has kind of this sudden awakening, sudden practice, possibly at that moment. Possibly they meant this, that until that moment, 
in a way, the real practice is maybe after that moment. I have no idea. You would have to talk to them. <laughs> I personally never got it. Yeah, no, the, the, their system uh, is a little different. So, I mean, uh, they would not have that. Uh, they would, this, this kind of like the, f the fall uh, came a little later, even within the Theravada tradition. And then in the Sun tradition, they, if you go theologically, they really go like kind of you then have the Bodhisattva, then you have the Bodhisattva stages. And then it can get very complicated. Um, and in a way, to me, what is interesting in the framework you talk about, because there is this framework in the Theravada tradition, where the first thing that goes, again, it's interpreted in different ways. That, you know, the feeling, the strong feeling of self goes. And then greed and hatred are diminished. And then the third one, greed and hatred are gone and then you wonder what's left and what I really find is so interesting in that framework conceptual framework of awakening what's left one of the things that's left is conceit I am awakened I find that so interesting but they have a little kind of they have different idea, a little around samadhi. They have a little different idea about the stages and things like that. But everybody developed different things according to the cultural, geographical, historical setting. Good. Then maybe we can do some walking meditation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.